Thank you, Tommy. Let's say a prayer. Lord, we have heard your word. Now, as we turn to reflect on it, grant us the help of your spirit, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Amen. What a difficult passage. I lost the toss of a coin about whether Tony Miles or Martin Atkins was going to get this passage. You'll wish I'd lost. It's known as the parable of the unjust steward, but it's the set gospel lesson for today, and here goes. And I guess this morning, it's more of an expository sermon where we look closely at the text at one or two points, and therefore I ask you to keep this open and keep this passage before you, uh, and try and concentrate even a little harder than some of you normally do. First of all, there are some common ways of interpreting parables. One common way of interpreting a parable is to use the main character in a parable as a, a role model to imitate. So, for instance, we do that very regularly when we read a parable like the Good Samaritan. We hear what that person's like and we hear the words of Jesus, go and do likewise. And he, the Good Samaritan, becomes a role model for how we ourselves ought to behave. But to do that in this instance is more, more questionable. Should we imitate the unjust steward in the belief that Jesus affirms us for being shrewd or even corrupt? Not surprisingly, many Christians find that very difficult. The second way in which parables are often understood or applied, is to take the words of Jesus in this particular story and then apply them universally, which in this case would mean that in all circumstances of life, in every context, Jesus can say to us, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. And not surprisingly, many Christians will find that difficult too. And we're in an odd position this morning with the gospel passage because we almost get to the point where we think we find more Jesus in the Old Testament prophet Amos than in Luke's story of Jesus himself. You cheat the poor, says Amos. You use dishonest scales to weigh food. You abuse those who have got no other options but to comply. And the Lord says, I will never forget anything that you've done. Now, that's more like it. We know where we are with a biblical text like that. Do you remember how when we look at a gospel passage, and I've done this several times as we've looked at gospel passages, that we spend a moment looking at what came before it and what came after it. We do that because the gospel writers put together things very thoughtfully and reflect, uh, reflectively. In other words, sometimes the way in which things are laid out and in which order is highly significant. It's worth doing that briefly today. This passage is what we call Luke 16 the first 13 verses we've read this morning. 
And Luke 15, the chapter immediately before it, contains some of the three most famous parables of Jesus of all. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son or sons. And their theme of joy that comes three times through each of those parables. Rejoice with me when what is lost is now found. And at the end of the prodigal son story, near the end verses of chapter 15, the father pleads with the older son who's remained at home with his father while the prodigal has been prodigal to come into the house and share the celebrations of the returned younger son. We actually don't know whether the elder brother ever did join the party. The parable leaves the matter completely unresolved when you look at the text, and we're left wondering what choice the elder son made. Then, and remember, chapters and verses were added much, much later for our benefit to be able to quickly find where we needed to be. Then there's this story about an unjust manager or steward. He, like the prodigal son, has misappropriated property acquired from somebody else. The father, in the case of the prodigal son, his master and employer, and the Greek verb is the same in both chapter 15 and chapter 16, in both stories, the misappropriation of money or resources results in a crisis. There are key differences, of course. The social contexts of chapter 15 and chapter 16 are very different. The prodigal son story is set in the context of a patriarchal family. You take your inheritance. And the manager works in a commercial or a trade context. And yet, both of these stories involve honor and shame in their different contexts. The prodigal son ends up feeding pigs, unclean, prohibited animals, the ultimate shame for a true Israelite. And the prodigal has squandered his family inheritance when it wasn't wholly his to squander. It belonged in trust to his family, and he now has nothing to pass on. In other words, the prodigal has effectively denied his Jewish heritage at least twice. And the father in the story knowingly and willingly ignores these violations of honor and shame codes and welcomes him back into the house and celebrates his return. Though the context is different, there's honor and shame codes going on in chapter 16 too. The issue here is social acceptability. In the ancient world, trade was undertaken between owners and clients or debtors through a broker. One of the key reasons for that was so that people of lofty or land-owning or wealthy estate didn't have to deal directly with the poor, and therefore you created a person in between to manage that for you. And the man in the story is a broker between presumably a rich master, a rich uh, landlord, and his debtors. And that is a position of some power. And it's quite clear that the issue of shame and honor for him is losing the status of his position as a broker. 
Without that permission, position, he has no status, he loses face, he has no known position in ancient society. So though different, the prodigal and the manager both develop ways of dealing with a crisis when they've misappropriated funds. The prodigal decides to return to his father and tries to change his status. Treat me as one of your servants. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In order to make clear an acknowledgement of his indebtedness to his father. The manager decides a scheme to make his master's debtors indebted to him. And together, they effectively fleece the master of what he's really owned, honor among thieves, thieves, so to speak. And we might pause just at this moment to apply what we're learning about this parable. How do we, as followers of Jesus today, deal with position, power, honor, and shame? Are we like the manager, embroiling more and more people in our failures and poor judgments? I was only doing my duty. It's their fault, these debtors, they bought my silly plan. And we try to ensure that we get out of that situation as cleanly as possible. We either get as much as we can out of the deal, or we appear as much Teflon-like distance, it wasn't really our fault. Or again, are we like the manager in that we come to a point where our role in life dominates who we are and therefore how we act? To be the broker or whatever is to have power and authority. To be known as this or that. Even, listen, a role in the church which has become so important to us that we'll do anything to guard it, to hold on to it, because it's become who we are? Or are we like the prodigal returning to the father, aware of the hurt that we've caused and the failure that we've made, and trying to find ways of making amends? Then, as is the way of the gospel, becoming aware that when a person is truly sorry and repentant, the forgiveness of God is greater and more wonderful than we can expect or imagine. Which best fits us this morning? And what are we going to do about it? Well, another question. As you read this text, which will help us, I hope you'll see. Who is the master in the story. Now, by this, I don't mean is he called Fred or Bert, but who is being referred to? You see, the word Luke uses in this parable all the way through is a very common Greek word, kyrios, which simply means master or can be translated lord. They're almost interchangeable. It's the master is it the master referred to here in the story, meaning the one who commends the dishonest manager because he's acted shrewdly to get some of the bills owed settled? Or is the master Jesus? And it's Jesus commenting about the shrewd manager saying he's done well by being shrewd. 
That's actually a key question, though it might sound incidental at the moment. Martin Luther, the great father of the Reformation, you know, he who nailed 95 short statements of faith to a castle wall in Germany in 1517. So we'll be celebrating 500 years of that event next year. Martin Luther believed that the master in this story referred to Jesus himself. Jesus is praising the shrewdness of the manager. And Martin Luther had some beliefs that some find extremely helpful and others find extremely disturbing. But they're worth mentioning in the context of this parable we're studying this morning. Luther believed and taught what's known, if you just let me get technical for one moment, as a two-kingdom ethic. God, he says, rules the whole world. It's all God's. But he rules in two different spheres, two different kingdoms, in different ways and by different means. So, there is a worldly kingdom, the kingdom of this world, if you like, which is ruled by God through kings, through governments, and through secular laws. And then there's the heavenly spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, he refers to in his writings, where gospel grace rather than secular law rules. Christians, of course, belong to the heavenly kingdom, but they live until their death in the earthly or worldly kingdom. And while they live in the worldly kingdom, they are expected as good citizens, said Luther, to obey kings and governments and laws. Now, of course, the kingdom of this world also consists not just of Christians, but of those people who are not Christian and don't behave as Christians. Luther said they still need temporal laws and authorities to prevent anarchy and selfishness and chaos from prevailing. So it's not in Luther's thinking that there's one kingdom belongs to God and the kingdom of this world belongs to the devil. They both belong to God, but God chooses to rule, to regulate how these spheres go in different ways as necessary. Now this doctrine has had enormous ramifications for Christians down the centuries. It's guided some Christians, for example, to believe that though the heavenly kingdom is one of peace and eternal peace, the worldly kingdom in which we now live sometimes requires us to fight wars and to personally participate in them. It enables Christians who work in secular systems to work with integrity Luther famously argued that it was entirely possible that a Christian could be a hangman. He was required as a Christian to obey the law, to be a good citizen, and therefore if his job was to be the hangman, he should do it and do it to the best of his ability. In a world where many, no, where all of us live, where we're sometimes asked to do or give permission to do or turn a blind eye to things that lie uneasily with our conscience or our integrity, or, or where we work in a context of investment of things that ultimately challenge our conscience. Luther's doctrine has been of enormous encouragement. 
enabling followers of Jesus Christ to seek to try and live with integrity in a compromised world, a world which is not on earth, which is not yet as it is in heaven. Now, of course, Luther's critics simply argue that this doctrine is a recipe to permit absolutely anything. You can absolve, absolve your conscience of anything. A Christian soldier could conceivably work in a concentration camp, ushering Jews and others to their death, and then go home and say their prayers every night. What kind of doctrine is that, they say? I'm only doing my duty, doesn't wash. And actually, although Luther, of course, knew nothing about the Holocaust, he would have entirely rejected that criticism. Clearly, evil leaders need to be resisted, which is actually, paradoxically, by some wars, our thought. And he was clear that the overarching principle for Christian action in both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world was love. When Christians invoke power, he said, it ought never to be on their own behalf, but only out of love for their neighbors. A Christian's love towards their neighbor in both the spiritual and temporal spheres, kingdoms, as well as the actions that result from such love, are fundamental to understanding what Luther meant when he talked about a two-kingdom ethic. Or if you'll uh, let me, just for one more minute, look at the holiness teaching of Methodists in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, about which, when I was at Cliff College, we spent a lot of time looking at various people, men and women, who spawned and supported those holiness movements. They were quite clear that they lived in a compromised world and that they sought to be holy and therefore people of integrity in it. And they had a very interesting theory. And that was that when you first became a Christian, God only made you aware of the level of sinfulness and your complicity in a sinful world as much as you could understand. But the more that you said your prayers and the more that God illuminated your life through your prayers, through your reading of the Bible, through your fellowship with other Christians, in other words, as you became more deeply a disciple, what God did periodically was to say, now do you see that what you've been doing and how you've been reacting and how you've been living in relation to this is not how I'd like it to be. But that happens over a period of time because God knows that we can only cope with what we apprehend is within his will. So it's quite possible, argued even the most fervent holiness teacher, that shortly after your conversion, you could do this, this, and this, and then five years later, you'd say, I don't know how I ever thought I could do that. Because you're progressively moving towards a position where God's revelation leads you to work with integrity in a compromised world. Well, back to the text. Most people now don't agree with Martin Luther, so I've led you down a garden path. Most people say the master in the story is not Jesus, but in fact is the master of the unjust manager, the boss, the landowner. That's very important, just locate that. The boss is not Jesus, it's the landowner. So that when, as Tommy was reading this Bible passage, at any point it says, the master says, the master commends, it's the master of the unjust servant. And in verse 8, you begin to get a hinge. 
Because Jesus refers to children of the world who are more shrewd, he says, than people of the light. And we just begin to see how this difficult parable might work. Who are the children of this world in the story that Jesus is telling? They are the unjust manager, yes. They are the debtors who collaborated with him to rip off the master, yes. And they are the master himself who turns round and looks at the corruption of his manager and says, you did really well there. They all derive their living. They all position themselves in the story in a way that's in conflict with God's realm, where unrighteousness and injustice is just the way it is. They will be friends, says Jesus in verse 8 and 9. They will be friends together in eternal dwellings. Now, just to pause, I don't want you to be fooled by this phrase, eternal dwellings, because English doesn't do very well by it. Luke gives you clues of how he wants you to respond to things, and he gives you a clue here, because the word that Luke uses for eternal dwellings is not a big building in my father's house and many mansions. He uses a word that's used by Paul to describe tents that you put up one day and that you dismantle the next to move somewhere else. So what you've really got is they will be friends in their eternal tents that next week will fall down. Jesus is saying, if you make friends with the unrighteous and the friends of the unrighteous and their friends, how eternal, how lasting do you think all that will be? Which leads to the second part of the text, which is really from verse 9 onwards. Where having set up his hearers nicely, Jesus talks about the incompatibility of two realms. The realm of the unrighteousness and the realm of righteousness. He says, whoever is dishonest in very small things is dishonest with much bigger things. If you're not faithful with dishonest wealth or resources, who's going to entrust you with true riches? In other words, how you handle money and resources now has eternal consequences. You cannot, he says, serve God and mammon, and mammon is a Semitic word simply meaning money. You see, the master of the unjust manager praises him for his shrewdness, His persuading of debtors to settle their debts unjustly is seen as acceptable. And it's all based on the fact that serving mammon rather than righteousness makes it okay. And in our society, in this place, in this time, that's a message I think every Western person and every Western Christian needs to think of time after time after time. There are generally agreed rules about parables. We looked at two of them right at the beginning of this sermon. But another key rule about parables is that they only have one point, and mostly they do. But I want you to draw, I want to draw as a close and yet another interpretation of parables that you see from those who are experts in biblical exposition, and it's this. 
that a parable is a vivid story which seduces hearers into a certain way of thinking and a place where they land only to give them a complete sting in the tail where you turn it round. Like a movie film where you're absolutely certain that everyone's going to end up happily ever after and then there's a catastrophe, unusually in the last scene. Or that you go all the way through the film believing that the baddie is the baddie until you actually understand why he's doing what he's doing and he's the goody after all. And Jesus does that here. He starts to tell a story in front of his disciples. There was a rich man who had, and he did this and did that. And do you know, the rich man said to his steward, well done, corrupt steward. You can now inhabit with your friends eternal dwellings that won't last five minutes. Pause. But people who are put in charge of small things and are corrupt will be put in, not be put in front of large things. People who deal with temporal things poorly won't be put in charge of eternal things because you cannot serve God and money. You've got to hear how it's preached. Your world is upside down, says Jesus. It's based on wrong foundations and its fruits are fallen friends and fail and fickle futures. So seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. So how does a curious parable with a sting in the tail find you this morning? Amen. A charge to keep I have a God to glorify. 